they're trying to understand what is this and do I want to talk to my provider about it? The pharmaceutical side is FDA clearance. And that's what really steered us in that direction as well, is how do we get physician buy-in and really get them to trust and believe in the product? Welcome to Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today. And I'm your host, Eugene Burhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode. And it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Josh Sackman, president and co-founder of Applied VR. In their own words, Applied VR and their virtual reality-based treatments represent a comprehensive approach to chronic pain that empowers patients with accessible digital tools self-managed in their own homes. Today, I speak with Simon Levy, CEO and co-founder, and Anne Montgomery, Chief Product Officer at Mahana Therapeutics. In their own words, Mahana develops digital treatments for people living with chronic health conditions, and their first treatment, Mahana for IBS, is now available as an FDA-cleared app. But before we dive in, Simon and I first connected in late October of 2022. In the first call, Simon struck me as a very humble, knowledgeable, and to-the-point person. We agreed that we will get him on the podcast in 2023. When the time came for our podcast, Simon's humbleness also brought Anne Montgomery to the podcast. As a chief product officer, she struck me as detail-oriented, succinct, and most importantly, for the first time in this podcast history, she brought actual testimonials from patients. Kudos. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Simon and Anne. Simon and Anne, welcome to the DTX podcast. I have not done many of these with two people on. And as we want to get to know you as individuals, we got to be a little bit quicker than normal, but that's okay because people's attention spans are pretty short. So with that, I'd love to get a little bit of background on each of you and then also fun fact about each of you. And maybe we'll start with Anne. Great to be here. Nice to properly meet you, Eugene. So I was most recently Mahana's chief product officer. I joined in 2019, I believe I was employee number 11. And so I recently actually stepped back into more of a board observer advisor role, though I'm still quite involved, but we just made the difficult decision to actually downsize our product teams in order to focus more of our resources on driving commercial traction. Before Mahana, I was a product leader at Intercom and Airbnb. And across my career, I've worked in tech companies where there's a fair amount of pioneering and by that, I mean, no one has done this before. Maybe we have to invent something new. There's no real playbook. And like a lot of folks in this space, I'll also add that I got into digital therapeutics because I myself live with a chronic condition. I have thoracic endometriosis. It was quite a journey to figure out what it was to get diagnosed and to figure out how to manage it. And so maybe my plug for today is that I'd love to talk with any entrepreneurs or leaders out there who are working on women's health or who are working with underserved populations. Amazing. And all of that was an interesting fact by itself, but please go ahead. Yes, that was interesting. <laughs> it was very surprising for me as well. Anyway, so fun fact, husband and I have a tiny winery up in Sonoma County where we grow Pinot Noir grapes. It's teeny tiny, but it's a nice compliment to working online on screens all day long. So it's good to get out, be on a tractor, be in the field. Absolutely. We know that morning sunshine is great for your health. Simon, off to you. Same question, a little background and a fun fact. Absolutely. I'm Simon Levy. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Mahana. 
I've been here since the very, very beginning. My background is actually similar to Anne's and is not coming from the healthcare sector. So I've spent a long time in Silicon Valley, really working at mission-focused companies. And I've had a skew towards the technology side for most of my career. I started off as a software engineer and then quickly worked my way into leadership positions. And that ultimately led me to Mahana, and I'm happy to share our founding story as well. Interesting fact about myself, I was thinking about this one, and this is actually what most don't know about me, but why I've really gravitated towards a lot of mission-focused work has really been my upbringing. And I did a lot of mission-oriented activities in my youth, which took me to Nicaragua three times to help efforts where we're building homes in impoverished communities. And I also actually graduated high school early so I could go to Brazil and teach English. <laughs> so I've always had a skew towards uh, mission-oriented work, and I've been uh, happy to bring that to my career and ultimately to Mahana. I was going to say heard it here first, as many people you said don't know this about you. So we're honored that you brought this to this podcast and thank you for all the work you've been doing there. As you mentioned, you've been there from very early days. Would love to hear how the company got started and let's rewind back to 2018, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2018, five years ago is when we officially founded and really incorporated the business, but the concept was being worked on long before that. So it really started with my business partner, who was really researching the GI space out of personal interest long before that. So he had a close friend suffering from a chronic GI condition. And like many, we want to jump in and help those we care about. So he was researching and found a lot of things through that journey. He found that there was a lack of treatments available to patients. He found that providers were really frustrated and looking for new treatment options. And he ultimately brought me in as a technology partner in our early exploration. And we started collaborating about a year before we officially founded the business. Through that research, and it was really that, a lot of deep research and talking to people as many entrepreneurial stories start. And we ultimately found the concept of cognitive behavioral therapy and found that it was very well researched and highly effective within GI conditions. So that was really the spark that drew us together and really enabled us to build like a collaborative partnership where he was coming from the life sciences and healthcare sector, and I'm coming from the technology side. And that's really where digital therapeutics ignites is these are healthcare products clinically validated, well-researched therapies that are built using technology. And then ultimately, we were really keen and interested in solving the core entrepreneurial problem, which is there are a lot of patients seeking these treatments, but not enough providers to provide it. So again, this is where digital therapeutics really shines, is that it can bring scale to effective therapies. Absolutely fascinating. And I think we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening to this and some investors. And before we dive into the product roadmap, evidence, channels, all that fun stuff, would love to hear a little bit of the funding journey here. And the interesting part that some of the founders always ask me to ask the guests is, what are some milestones that are always associated? Like, what are the steps through that process? Walk our listeners through it, please. Our early seed round is really focused on the concept and the team. We'd identified a large market in a class of therapies that could be delivered into that market. So it was really focused on company formation and really narrowing and honing that concept. We very quickly found that we could fast track our process by in licensing and really partnering with leading research institutions. And this is true in a lot of digital therapeutics, but you're really met with open arms as you start talking to the clinical community and the research community because they want these treatments as well. 
that ultimately led us to King's College, which we'll talk a bit more about later. But once we identified that research partner, that really sparked further funding to really further develop the product and really build towards what the product you see today is. The latest round of funding, which is our by far the largest round, was really focused on commercialization. So at that point, the milestone was really, we'd been through the FDA, we were ready to get this product more integrated into the healthcare system and get into more patient hands. And that funding was to fuel exactly that. It was to fuel the marketing and development of commercial programs. As you mentioned, right, so the initial focus as you guys got started was around gut health, I think IBS specifically, but your website says digital treatments for people with chronic health conditions. Can you guys talk about your pipeline a little bit? And we'll get into evidence stuff later, but just more from a product roadmap, for lack of a better term. So we've really planned from the beginning to go beyond IBS. And over the last couple of years, we've made big strides in building what we call internally our treatment development engine. And by that, we mean the processes and the technology that allow us to do this. And so to Simon's earlier point, I think while our first treatment protocol, we did in-license that from King's College. We did that in the early days, really to help Mahana gain momentum in the beginning. And rather than continuing that approach and going out and taking an asset acquisition approach, we decided to build an extensible software platform. And that allows us to more rapidly develop these digital treatments from scratch. And so to date, we've developed three new products. We have one for tinnitus, one for vulvar or vaginal pain, and one for pruritus. And to speak just a little bit to where they are in development, all three are essentially built, as in the protocol is defined, the treatment is written, and now they've been through a series of micro-tests to validate that the key mechanisms of action across the protocols are working, and we're going to clinically validate our tinnitus product at scale. So that's the next step. We're moving tinnitus forward. And I think along this journey, we've learned quite a lot about how to build these in-house. I think this is a real differentiator for Mahana. At this point, it's very clear that we can do it efficiently. I could talk your ear off about it, I suppose, but I think maybe just to say that for now, I think the near-term focus for Mahana will be really gaining commercial traction with our first product, Mahana IBS. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. And on that note, and let's stick with you, Anne. Obviously, this has got to be in hands and ultimately brains and guts <laughs> of the patient, right? Walk us through that end customer patient experience and probably some of the complexities of the DTX product development process. So we'd love to understand both. This is something we haven't really been out talking about this, but a lot of us in industry are talking and it's such an interesting conversation. And I think we could talk about this for hours, but let me just start by explaining the patient experience and then we'll get a little bit into the complexities and see how far we go. So all of our treatments are focused on reducing symptoms or severity using cognitive behavioral therapy that's tailored specifically to the disease and the patient. That's all of our treatments. And so now I'll speak a little more specifically to our IBS program that's commercially available today, just so people can picture the experience. So Mahana IBS is a linear program. Patients are going through 10 sessions that you can think of as themes. And themes are things like managing your symptoms, managing your diet, sleep, activity. And then as you're coming through this, the program is personalized. In the case of IBS, it's personalized to the type of IBS you have, and then to your specific symptoms, your specific needs. And every day, a patient is going to interact with a combination of different features or components. So it's going to be things like tailored lessons, in-app activities like a square breathing video, and logging. The lessons in particular are very interactive. 
So they're filled with strategies, tips, skills. One of the things we did was we went out and we produced a whole series of selfie videos that are actually recorded by graduates of the Mahana program that showcase their real experience living with IBS and also tips and tricks that they learned from us through the program. They really resonate with patients. They really make the program feel human. We talk to IBS patients all the time about how alone they feel, how they don't know anyone else with this condition. And so, yeah, we've brought a lot of those kinds of things into the program, a lot of those, um, those kinds of learnings. And the program works. So community is a big part of it. It is, yes. And how do you do community in a digital therapeutic FDA-cleared product, right? So that's one of our solutions. That was my next question. You beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge topic. But that was one of the first things we did because we knew people really wanted that. And I think most importantly, the program works. It's highly efficacious. It's been FDA-cleared. Getting it out commercially was a big moment for us. Everyone in this space, we talk about the phases of development and you start in this clinical phase where you're really limited to clinical testing and you can't just put your product out into the real world. And so we're also hungry to know how does it actually perform in the real world? And so what's been great to see is that for folks who are actual users in the real world, so by that, I mean folks who've purchased a script and who complete the program, we're seeing similar responder rates. And it's been just really exciting to see that the program, it really works. Maybe we'll just build on that last point and say that getting the product out into the real world, you know, you're trying to get to that moment because that's where this ongoing continuous improvement really starts from there. We've learned a ton since we got the product out commercially. And over the last year and a half, we've started to bring that learning into a series of design iterations and tests. And now we actually have a next gen version that's about to enter clinical testing. And I think the holy grail in this space is getting patients to stick with your product long enough for them to actually see outcomes, right? That's the holy grail. That's what we're all working on and talking about. It's very possible to create a therapeutic protocol that works clinically, but increasing the actual number of patients that are going to be motivated to stick with it and really do it, that is the ongoing work. That's what we've been very focused on. And the next gen version includes a number of changes. And I was trying to think, how would I describe this to you without showing it to you in the screens? But I think what we can say is that the changes largely impact what I'll call the presentation layer of the program. So sort of the design patterns, the engagement model, and our hope and what we really believe we've accomplished is that we're creating even more motivating interface that's going to increase patients' progression through therapy and their overall retention. And that's something, again, that we're always going to be working on. But I do really think that the next gen version is a big leap forward and it's done really well in user research. So stay tuned for that. And I'm actually thinking maybe we should have like an offshoot of the DTX podcast just for product leaders, because I think it's like a next frontier because it's certainly challenging. So I appreciate you sharing it. Absolutely. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, Anne. Would love to hear about the intricacies of your freemium model and how that then translates into a prescribed digital therapeutic. Thank you, Chandana. Yes, I heard you and Eugene talking about this on an earlier episode, and I was thinking you might have been talking about us. So there's a lot to say here. So this brings us to a concept that we work with a lot at Mahana where we distinguish between what we call the core therapeutic protocol and what we call the container experience. And I've sometimes heard folks in the industry refer to this as 
pill versus wrapper. The core therapeutic protocol is what is FDA cleared and it requires a paid prescription. And then things like sign up and onboarding are container experiences. And I would say we didn't set out to create a freemium experience, which I suppose implies to me kind of a version of the prescription product that users can then pay to upgrade. I think what we set out here was really to create an introductory experience that's available to folks. And what we were doing here is accounting for all the different places that people might be in their journey with Mahana. And this is really interesting because this is about sort of the commercial complexity that's in the space. So let me give some examples. Some folks come to us having already talked to their doctor and they already know that their doctor has written them a script and they might simply be waiting for their script to be dispensed and for the program to be unlocked. And we don't want to lose them in that moment. If they come to us and they download the program and they've got highest activation energy and motivation to start, we want an experience where they can get going. And then some folks have actually maybe just been doing online research or they found us in the product in the app or the Play Store. And so they're trying to understand what is this and do I want to talk to my provider about it? And so there's a whole range of places where folks are in their journey. So the introductory experience is allowing folks to download the app they can come through onboarding and then they can come through an initial five intro lessons. And those lessons are covering things like what is CBT? How does the program work? You learn kind of the biopsychosocial model and how it's going to impact your IBS symptoms. And you're experiencing the product. You're using it. So you can think about, is this something that I would like to talk to my doctor about and that I would enjoy continuing to use? And then this is the tricky part. You can imagine across this whole experience, patients are seeing a call to action. So kind of a banner across the top of their screen that allows them to either come through our telehealth flow so they can talk to a doctor or download an information packet that they can bring to their own doctor. Or lastly, they can see that there's some messaging that sort of explains if you're waiting on your prescription to be dispensed, you'll hear from us soon. It is really a complex experience that has evolved over time to account for the fact that we were getting patients into our program from across different channels. As usual, I'm going to hop in. First of all, I love hearing this core clinical and the container model. It's one of those, wow, why didn't I think of this? Pretty impressive from that perspective. And actually, my next question was going to go into the FDA approval and evidence generation process and any complexities with that. But I'm going to put that to the side and ask any complexities around an actual licensed product from King's College for this. So if one of you guys can talk about the FDA approval and any lessons learned there. Absolutely happy to talk about that. And it really does begin with King's College. So initially, when we were looking at the fastest way to get this product to market as an FDA cleared product, the biggest need is data. And really within cognitive behavioral therapy, you're looking for a well-tested therapeutic protocol that shows safety and efficacy. In our case, we were very fortunate and we really dove into to PubMed to look at all of the world-leading research that had been happening in the space. Within IBS, at the time of our initial founding, there had been about 45 trials that had been run using various protocols. Those take many, many different forms. Some of those were face-to-face -face protocols. And in a few cases, we found digital products that were delivering those protocols King's College being the leading example of that and the best studied at the time. At that point, it was the largest trial in the category. So it was a 550 patient trial that tested the core therapeutic protocol and also had an arm delivering the same protocol via a website. And that product in a certain form 
became the real catalyst for our FDA clearance. So it wasn't the exact product. We modernized the interface of the product. The therapeutic protocol was exactly the same. And that was important in the FDA's eyes as well. And what was most important was the clinical data underlying that study that really demonstrated how effective and ultimately how safe the product was, because that's really what the FDA is looking at. In the case of IBS, it's also interesting to note that safety is somewhat of a concern because IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So there are a lot of patients who do have symptoms that could be IBS, but they could also be something much more severe, and they should see a doctor or consult with a physician to rule out any of those other medical conditions. The process of working with Kings was generally positive. We're really fortunate to be met with open arms by the scientific community because they are all driven by the same desire, which is to get these treatments out into the world and used by as many patients as possible. So we hit it off very quickly with the lead researcher and the research team behind the product, and that really cued a more formal discussion around licensing. It's not completely easy just because of the same reasons why building these products is hard as well, because this is a new concept, because you don't know what type of license to craft as you come through this process. It's not quite a technology product or technology license. It's not quite a chemical compound or a true biotechnology license. So ultimately it landed somewhere in between where it has a lot of concepts borrowed by both, but that certainly extended the negotiation period. Ultimately, I believe it took us about eight months to work with the licensing office at King's College, but they were also fantastic partners as we came through and really embraced the fact that this is a new space. It's not going to be easy. We're going to have to be a little bit creative in areas, but ultimately we made it happen. I haven't even thought about the licensing thing. I know DTXs are typically stuck between SAMD and a molecule way of treating things. And so even from a licensing perspective, actually, it's a good point. So thanks for sharing that journey. Now, the decision to go prescription is always tough for entrepreneurs. And obviously, if we look at just the IBS and GI space, I don't know how many doctors, specialists are in U.S., So A, just your thinking early on around going prescription route, which means that you only have X number of docs or specialists prescribing this. And how do you really get that? And you mentioned earlier, commercial traction. So talk to us about the space and the decision and how you get doctors to adopt this going forward here. Yeah, absolutely. And this really does, again, go back to the very beginning where we've always believed that I'll call it an empathetic approach of how patients think about things like cognitive behavioral therapy as well, which is these are cutting edge new treatments. And oftentimes they do involve a bit more buy-in from a patient to start and really adhere to a therapy. And that actually fits really well in a physician prescribed model. So majority of people in the US do seek treatments and are referred into treatments by healthcare providers. And we really wanted to build on that channel. I mean, I think there's a certain trust that comes with a recommendation from a healthcare provider. And we really wanted to focus on that. And again, be empathetic with where digital therapeutics and cognitive behavioral therapy is in the treatment paradigm. So physician endorsement goes a long way. And to get that physician endorsement, you really have to be focused on the clinical data and the efficacy of the product. And the real gold standard of that in the pharmaceutical side is FDA clearance. And that's what really steered us in that direction as well, is how do we get physician buy-in and really get them to trust and believe in the product? 
It's going through the FDA and that carries through to patients. So when a patient recommends something like cognitive behavioral therapy, the patient's not just writing a script and saying, do this. There's a conversation that's happening and they have to explain the concept. They have to determine if it's the right fit for this patient or not. And that's really a clinical decision. And again, we can always look at the safety side of IBS patient profile as well, which is these patients may have something more severe and it's highly recommended that they do see a physician before starting our product for that very reason. And it's really, again, focused around patient safety. You obviously mentioned the trust of the provider or the clinician is important. On your website, it says providers. Now, obviously, as you guys grow in commercially, are you guys looking at being covered by health plans? Are you looking at employers, maybe Medicaid? And if to the extent that you can, to talk about some of the pricing thinking there. To answer that, you really need to start by looking at the IBS patient population. This is largely middle-aged, kind of middle-of-the-road socioeconomic population. So that really does rule out the majority of Medicare, Medicaid populations. And really, that puts them more into a commercially insured population. That's been a focus of ours since the very beginning, and this is largely just around broad access. Again, kind of the empathetic approach of this is how people typically buy healthcare products in the US in that they're used to their insurance paying for a portion of that. Again, been focused from the very beginning on talking to insurers and building a data set that would be compelling to get us to insurance coverage. But like many of the industry, we're seeing a slowness on the adoption of commercial insurers. So it's going to be a long road to get to broad commercial coverage, but one that we're committed to. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Simon Levy, Sion co-founder, and Anne Montgomery, chief product officer at Mahana Therapeutics. One of my key questions, and it's interesting, and you alluded to the fact that while you guys are a digital therapeutic, it's CBT-based, it was so important to get that community surrounding it. But I'm also going to ask, yes, the doctors are prescribing Selfishly, in some of the episodes I ask, where do you see the role of health coaches in all of this? We like to say that we all need a person to lean on at some point in our health journey, and health coaches are here to help, but curious on how you guys think about this. I think we have talked and thought about health coaches really from the very beginning. It's been an ongoing discussion internally. I think we've spoken to you about it too, Eugene, at different points, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) We did, yeah, indeed. So... It's something that we may experiment with and test yet, but I think along the road, what I'll say is there's a lot of ways to design a product and make a product be as human as possible without necessarily bringing coaches. And coaching, I think, is just one example of humans playing a role in the product experience. And so when you think about how we've built these treatments, we have humans who have actually worked with IBS patients closely that are designing the treatment protocol and the product itself. So We recruit a whole series of subject matter experts, doctors, and therapists who work with IBS patients. And so we hear a lot from them about what these conditions are like and how do you actually motivate patients in the experience and what works and what hasn't worked. And so the people who are really connected and who have all the experience and the insights and the know-how, how fast can you push people, things like that, that's all incorporated into the product. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you have a whole series of stories in the app from the patients themselves who've completed the program. And then there's all the users who give us feedback and user research. So there's a lot of ways that humans are playing a role and we've tried to make the product human. And actually, Eugene, I brought a couple of quotes. Shout out to Jana on my team for sending these over. 
because I think it's one thing when I say, oh, the product feels human. This is what we live for is when we actually hear for the patients themselves. Shall I read them? Yeah, let's do it. This is awesome. Just to kind of capture that, because this is what we're trying to make the program feel as human as possible. So one person writes, I feel very seen and understood. In this lesson, I felt like it really anticipated everything that's unfolding for me. And my experience is that the program is almost magic and tailored to me. And then another one wrote, and this goes to what I was saying earlier, this app does a really good job of knowing what it's like. It makes me think that the researcher or developer has an itching problem themselves just from reading it. And this is from our Paritis product. And another person writes, it made me feel like I wasn't the only one going through this complicated situation. And that really drives that point home. This feeling of being so alone when you have a chronic condition, that's partly what we're setting out to shift in the treatment experience itself. Thank you for bringing these quotes. Just amazing to hear. And we've had some patients reach out to myself saying, hey, I've heard so-and-so on and I've tried or I asked my doctor for a prescription and it helped. So it's wonderful to hear this. So thank you for bringing it. I'm going to actually ask both of you. I ask for our guests to give advice. And I'm actually going to start with you. As we said, we're not going to have an offshoot of the DTX podcast and product managers. So maybe this is your chance to give a little bit of advice to some going forward. So let me try not to go too deep here. So stop me if this gets too detailed, but I'll speak to one of the questions that I get from other product leaders, particularly actually peers that are outside our space, but certainly from folks within the space as well. We're all discussing this. So we are a company like a lot of others in the space that are bringing together traditional software product development with the life sciences approach. And our digital treatments, as we've said, are based on clinical research, clinical trials, high quality regulatory processes. And there's a tension there. There's just an inherent tension because in the best product and design driven software companies, product teams are empowered to rapidly iterate, to learn from customers, to identify problems, to design and test solutions and to push them out, out to the world to learn. And we know that that is how you build a great product. And so there's so many things that we could talk about around why it's different in digital therapeutics to do that. But the question I get most often is how do you actually iterate and make changes once you're FDA cleared? That's the question I get when you're building in the space. This takes us back to that concept of distinguishing between the core therapeutic protocol and the container experience and determining what is impacting the core therapeutic protocol versus what's impacting the container experience, that is a judgment call. And it takes a process, right, that we have to come through. And so being in a regulated space, we are required to assess all changes made to the product and they go through what is known as change control. And FDA provides guidance on what level of change is going to require a new submission. And so for every change that we make to the product, leadership from across product management, clinical, and regulatory all have to assess the change for risk to the overall experience. And then clinical and regulatory in particular have to assess whether or not the change is going to require more clinical data and whether or not it's going to have to go back to FDA. And so regulatory has to sign off on all changes before we introduce updates. And some things get to ship immediately and we get to put them out into the product immediately and make immediate improvements the way that maybe we would more classically do in a non-regulated space. And some things get rolled into the next gen version of the product that's going to go for clinical testing. And so that is so different from building software in non-regulated spaces. It takes time, it takes patience, but it's what's best for product. It's what keeps the efficacy and the safety there in the product. And what we've found, I guess it's been about four years now of doing this, is that it's very possible. It's actually possible. And we've gotten way better at it 
over the last few years. And so I'd say in the early days, I think there was a leaning towards let's not make changes. It's too complicated and difficult to make changes. And now I think we've really gotten more into a rhythm around how we do that. And that's what's required, again, because the holy grail is how do you get patients or users to actually stick with the program, not just to build something that you can say, okay, this works, but nobody really does it. It's like, no, you've got to get people to actually be motivated to do it. And that takes iteration. Amazing. And I'm really considering, I think we may need to do a whole series on this alone. I agree, actually. And get all of the product leaders from a digital therapeutics space. If not, I'll, at least I'll pitch for an event of some sort to share this. Simon, let's jump to you again. You've been there from the early days, and I'd like to ask you what advice you would give to other entrepreneurs that are just getting moving and going in the space. Any other lessons learned that you have? Yeah, absolutely. I'll focus on one that's said a lot, but can't be said enough, which is focus on the patients. I mean, within healthcare, it's the most important thing. And that's what really drives any company in the sector to success. We're all doing this. And I'd say Mahana's similar to many others where this was really started out of a personal experience with the healthcare system and treatment. And that's really how these things grow and get out into the world. And the patient needs to be the center of everything. I think Anne's alluded to it a lot, but that's something that we focus on a huge amount at Mahana. The other thing is really just around focus. And I think this is something that we also talk about a lot, specifically Anne and I, is when you're building in a new space, there's no shortage of things that you see or interact with that you want to improve. Ultimately, focus becomes a critical and important thing because a lack of focus can steer you away from what your core problem is, which is developing something that will help people get better and really focusing on that patient experience and the patient benefit. So focus is critical, especially in healthcare, where there are a lot of dark corners that can be challenging to work with them. But sometimes you have to embrace that, and really narrow your focus on creating the best product for your patients. Well said, and I certainly echo that because unfortunately we don't have unlimited resources. I always say everything is possible if you have time and money, and the money can get you the best talent. That's the hope always, but it's not only the money, so it's just time. We started with you two. Let's finish this episode with you two, and maybe I'll start with Simon this time. What gets you up in the morning? Good question. The funny answer is probably my three-year-old and two dogs, but Really, I mean, it's being able to work on a concept like Mahana. I've always gravitated towards mission-focused startups, and this is my first experience in the healthcare sector. This type of mission goes far beyond things that I've worked on in the past because healthcare is so deeply impactful for people's lives, and especially those with chronic conditions. The things that really get me up in the morning are hearing patient testimonials and patient quotes of how the product has worked and how they are feeling better than they previously were after coming through our product. So the ability to deliver that type of impact through a piece of technology is just incredible and it really inspires me every day. Amazing. Anne, off to you. I'm still working with Mahana pretty regularly, so it's similar. I really want this to exist in the world. I really want patients to have access to this and to figure out how to get it to more patients and very motivated by the mission to treat patients with chronic conditions. But at the same time, as I've stepped back, I'm thinking a lot about where to focus next. And so taking a little bit of time just to be up in the vines, be with my kids, but I'm waiting to see what hooks me next. And I suspect I'll stay in the space working on women's health or something to that effect. The actual literal answer to what gets me up in the morning is my teething 15-year-old who is screaming a lot. I love how you guys reversed the answers from that perspective. But 
one quick comment, and I think we all get into healthcare for our own reasons many times, whether it's ourselves, our family, loved ones. And so I do have a strong feeling that once you enter the healthcare industry, it's hard to go back anywhere else just from an impact perspective. So Anne, I hope we continue seeing you in this industry. And for both of you, thank you for making the time and looking forward to some of the progress that Mahana makes commercially so we can see other products come to life as well. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.